Hi, Sarah. Hi, Allison. So we're back after a month off, and it's been a month since Hamas attacked Israel. Yeah, militants from the Islamist Palestinian group that controls Gaza killed 1,400 people in the attack on October the 7th. And since then, Israel has retaliated with a massive bombing campaign on Gaza, and there are thousands of people dead. And this conflict, of course, is having an impact here in France. About 40 French people are believed to have been killed in the Hamas attack, and there are eight unaccounted for, some of whom the French foreign ministry believe are being held hostage in Gaza. France is home to the third largest Jewish population in the world, after the US and Israel, so around 500,000 people, and an even bigger number of Muslims. They make up about 11% of the population. Yeah, and right after the October 7th attack, the government, the French government through its support behind Israel defending its right to retaliate. President Macron called for unity. He went to Israel partly to try to get the hostages mm. released. But the support for Israel has been difficult to maintain in the face of Israel's continuing bombing of Gaza, which has unleashed a lot of anger here. Here in France, pro-Palestinian demonstrations were initially banned outright. That was in the name of keeping public order and preventing anti-Semitic incidents. Yeah, yeah. And then the courts weighed in. They said you can't impose a blanket ban. Mm. So police prefects had to decide on a case-by-case basis. A few rallies have been authorized since then, and they've drawn thousands of people, and for the most part, they've been peaceful. Yeah, but it's certainly not helping to bring Mm pro-Palestinians and pro-Israelis any closer. Since the start of the conflict, there's been a rise in Islamophobia here and a wave of anti-Semitic attacks. In the past month alone, authorities have recorded 1,100 anti-Semitic incidents, so attacks on people, defacing of Jewish schools or synagogues, online hate speech. And that's more than three times as many as all the incidents reported last year in 2022. Other countries have seen a similar wave of anti-Semitic attacks, and this has, of course, injected itself into politics. The left here in France is very divided over the degree to which Hamas should be denounced. Yeah, yeah. And the far right, interestingly, has used the conflict to further bolster its support for Jews. That's been happening now for a few years. The far right National Rally Party said that it would be taking part in a march against anti-Semitism that's planned for this Sunday by the heads of both houses of parliament, but it's left parties deeply divided. Yeah, yeah. Mainstream parties don't want to be seen marching side by side with the far right. The leader of the hard left, France Unbowed, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, said that no one from his party would be there. He called it a march of friends who give unconditional support to the massacre of Palestinians. Nona Mayer is a researcher at Sciences Po and the CNRS. She studies the support of the far right in France, as well as anti-Semitism and racism. I thought she'd be an interesting person to talk to about all of this. She says that Jews have been increasingly uneasy in France now for several years, since the first of a series of attacks targeting Jews. In 2006, you'll remember a Jewish man, Ilan Halimi, was kidnapped, tortured, and murdered by a gang who thought they could get money from his family because... All Jews are rich, as the stereotype goes. Yeah, and then there were the terror attacks. You remember in 2012, mm-hmm. Mohamed Mecha attacked a Jewish school in Toulouse. Then in 2015, during the Charlie Hebdo attacks, four people were also killed at a Jewish supermarket in the south of Paris called the Hyper Cacher. Yeah, and Nona Mayer says anti-Semitism has been on the rise since the second intifada in 2000. This unleashed a wave of emotion and anti-Semitic attacks by people who were conflating Jews with Israel, something that, of course, is happening again today. 
But she says that paradoxically, anti-Semitic attitudes in France have been going down. A yearly survey by the National Commission of Human Rights shows that adherence to the old stereotypes, you know, Jews control the world, Jews have money, etc., those have been dropping regularly since 1990. So while this is good news, she told me that there are two shadows that remain. The first shadow is that old stereotypes associating Jews to money and power, they are still there. And they flare up every time one thinks that Jews are privileged uh, when you forbid a demonstration in favor of the Palestinian. Ah, you see, they are so powerful that they manage to do that. And the other shadow is that you have, there's quite a debate about a new anti-Semitism focused around the question of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. As far as emotions go, anger, seeing at the images of the conflict every time we have a new operation of Israel in the occupied territories or in Gaza, then you have an explosion of very violent sometimes anti-Semitic acts. So then we get to the political response to this, right? Because on, on the one hand, you know, France has a, a moral obligation to support French Jews, given the history in World War II. Mm-hmm. Also, just France has a very large Jewish population, the third largest in the world after the mm-hmm. United States and Israel. But also there's a political interest kind of towing the line, right? Supporting Israel, but also kind of skeptical of what Israel's doing. Well, because you have the memory of the Holocaust, because the French government of Vichy collaborated with the Nazis, because 75,000 Jews were deported and most of them never came back from the concentration camps, that memory of the past weighs over the relations with Jews. Actually, the government has tried, especially since all these uh, terrorist attacks against Jews, they have really tried to fight against anti-Semitism. There have been plan after plan to fight against racism and anti-Semitism. But it's, uh, there still is the feeling among French Jews that there's not solidarity. So it's a difficult situation, while on the left... The tropism of the left is to be on the side of the oppressed and the images one sees of the conflict since 1967, since the Six Days War, since the occupation of the territories. Israel had an excellent image when the war broke out. It was the small, tiny state uh, besieged by all the Arab countries around. But then when started the occupation and when started all these operations to try to contain uh, the Palestinians, all these things completely deteriorated the the image of Israel. And now Israel is seen as Goliath against David. So all that creates a complex situation. And the issue is, of course, dividing the left. And and to a lesser degree, dividing the right. Because today, Marine Le Pen uh, seizes the opportunity and and defends Israel as her main target today. Right after the the Hamas attack on October 7th, she stood up in the National Assembly and made this speech very much saying, I am your defense against anti-Semitism, which is a complete about-face from the history of her party, the history of her father. But she's different from her father. You Mm. see, it's another generation. Her party has not changed so much. Mm. Every time we do our surveys, we see that people who are voters or sympathizers of the Rassemblement National are the most anti-Semitic of all, even though their first target is Arab, Muslims, uh, Maghrebi. But if you take Marine Le Pen, she has had real confrontations with her father 
against his anti-Semitism, she has been fighting against him in a way if she, they finally expelled him from the party. It's because once more he had come out with all these things about the collaboration and all that. So she is not anti-Semitic. That's not her line. She has even, since she came to power in the party in uh, 2011, she has said that that's a red line. We are not against the Jews. On the contrary, we can defend Jews, we can defend gays, we can defend women against the real threat that represents Islamic fundamentalism in France today. And is this a moral or her, I guess, personal opinion, or is it a political decision? I think it's both. I think she's a new, another generation than mm-hmm. her father. Anti-Semitism is not her topic, that's not it. But she also has a very clever strategy, saying to the Jews, to the French Jews, vote for me because I'm the best shield you can have to protect you from the threat of Islamic terrorism, but also Islam, it turns very quickly, and Arabs and Maghreb. So, so, but you're saying, though, that the voters haven't necessarily followed suit. I wonder, though, about... Jewish voters. Traditionally, French Jews, is there sort of a a way that they vote and has it shifted to the right? We have data. It's difficult because they're a small minority, but people have been pulling several surveys and it's very clear that they have been drifting to the right with the idea that the left has abandoned them. At the time of Jean-Marie Le Pen, no, he wasn't palatable. You had less than 4% of French Jews who voted for Jean-Marie Le Pen in 2007. When Marine Le Pen arrived and said, I am defending the Jews against the Arabs, the Maghrebi, and the Muslims, you had 13.5%. And that's quite a change. And if you look at the more recent history, we've had a candidate, Eric Zemmour, who is a Jew, but who has come out with very assimilationist uh, sentences about what Jews should do and very ambiguous uh, statements. So so Zimul was the, he ran for president, he was the sort of far-right political pundit, very far-right, and he he ran for president and took votes away, to some extent, from 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 Marine Le Pen. But she she took votes from others, so she did her best score that she ever did. But Eric Zemmour drew 7% of the votes, and he was on a very radical extreme right line with a great replacement theory. But for some Jews, he represented the best shield, even a better shield than Marine Le Pen against the threat of Islamic fundamentalism. So basically the fear of anti-Semitism coming from radical Islam is more than the fear of, say, the more historical, I don't know how you want to put it, you know, stereotypical tropes of the the anti-Semitism that, that exists in Europe. On some level, that drives people into, well, some people into the arms of people who are also happy to have full-on anti-Semites in their parties. But they fear, they fear both. Yeah. But they fear now a little more because of that rise of uh, acts who are really in relation with what's going on in the Middle East. Now you have really that, that uh, fear. But if you look at what's going on now, the number is so high because they are conflating you have, at the same time, attacks from the good old extreme right. You have had Nazi signs everywhere. Uh, you've had young people starting Nazi hymns in the subway. So the extreme right little groups have been very active, actually, in France. Since 2018 and the Yellow Vest demonstrations, you started seeing in some of the demonstrations, Not I don't say that the Yellow Vests were an anti-Semitic movement, not at all, but you had 
extremist, anti-Semitic slogans. And, and then we had the COVID. And we had again people carrying uh, posters in the demonstrations where you had the good old slogans of the 30s, anti-Semitic, saying, but who? And with a list meaning it's the Jews, it's the fault of the Jews if we have COVID, uh, giving the name of Jewish personalities, including those who were at the Ministry of Health. So you see that extreme right uh, matrix is still there. And the number on anti-Semitic acts is linked to the fact that you have, at the same time, extreme right and people who are on the side of the Palestinians. And it goes far beyond Jews and Muslims. You have people who are just indignant of what has been going on. Going back to the politics, there's also a lot going on right now about the far left, what we call them France Unbowed, the France Insoumise, and Jean-Luc yes, Mélenchon. We call them extreme left. Right, right. the extreme left, who, who sort of is, is not quite condemned the Hamas attack on Israel, and that is seen as not supporting French Jews. Well, it's complicated because if you look at the extreme left, you see that even believing in the old stereotypes of Jews have money and power, it's lower on the left. It, it's record levels on the far right and the radical right. But it goes up a little around les insoumis. So there's something going on there with the idea that uh, the policies of Israel are bad. And from that, they essentialize Uh, French Jews, it's the Jewish state, it's French Jews, and they become the targets of the anger against Israel. In the same way, French Muslims are attacked every time you have a terrorist attack. In 2015, after the Charlie Hebdo attack, you had an enormous rise in anti-Muslim aggressions. So the international context weighs very heavily on the images we have of Jews and Muslims in France. And so if we can speculate, <laughs> looking forward That's at right. all, I mean, who knows what's going to happen in the next days or m- weeks or months in the Middle East. But I feel like the impact on French politics, there's been an impact already. How lasting do you think it is? I think it has, has quite an impact on the French left. The French left was already, uh, they had tr- united uh, the, what we call the NUPS, which is a union of the socialist left, the radical left, and the green, mm-hmm. the ecologist party. Yeah, they've, now, they've never been a very strong union. No, but that really made it crumble even faster. Mm-hmm. So I think there will be consequences. And uh, will it be even possible to sew things together again? In a couple of days, on November 11th, it's Armistice Day. Also known as Remembrance Day in the UK or Veterans Day in the US. It's the anniversary of when World War I ended 105 years ago. Yeah, and it's also a day to remember the people who fought in it. Jessica Phelan joins us now to talk about one soldier in particular. Hi, Jess. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Alison. Hello, Jess. So the soldier I want to tell you about, his name was Eugene Bullard, and he was a black man. He was born in the United States in Georgia in 1894, about 30 years after the abolition of slavery, when the South remained deeply racially segregated. He ran away from home when he was about 12, 
and a few years later he stowed away on a ship and made it to Scotland. So this is before the war? Yeah, this is the early 1910s and by 1913 we know that he had made it to Paris. He'd taken up boxing and he was competing in prize fights. Yeah, and so then the war breaks out in 1914. Yeah, and uh, the US wasn't involved at first, so Bullard didn't have to fight, but he volunteered with the French Foreign Legion and he fought in the trenches at the Battle of the Somme and at Verdun. Other black soldiers also fought for France, of course. We've spoken on the podcast about the Tirailleurs Senegalais, the troops that were drawn from French colonies in Africa. Yeah, that's right. France had a history of recruiting soldiers from its colonies in North Africa and West Africa, um, and that was stepped up during World War One. Eugene Bullard actually would have served alongside some of those soldiers. Um, so that's not actually what makes his story so unusual. He was injured while fighting, and after that he says he bet a friend that he could enrol in flight school. So he became a pilot. Yeah, one of the first black fighter pilots and the first African-American fighter pilot in history. He was trained by the French Air Force, and he flew over a dozen combat missions for France in 1917. And that's around the time that the US entered the war. Yeah, and here's the really galling part. The US joined the war, um, but at the time, black Americans were hardly given any responsibilities in the armed forces. They were barely allowed to fight. They did mainly manual labor, um, let alone doing something as highly skilled as flying a fighter plane. That just wasn't on the cards. So Eugene Bullard tried to join the US Air Force and they refused him. But did he keep flying for France then? Well, at some point he was kicked out of the French Air Force for arguing with an officer, but he went back to the infantry and then after the war he was awarded the Croix de Guerre, these other medals for his service. So he got all these medals. What happened to him afterwards? Well, immediately after World War I, he stayed in France. He was part of this movement of African-Americans who found they had relatively more freedom and safety in Europe than they did in the US. Like Josephine Baker. Yeah, we've talked about her working for the French resistance during the Second World War and uh, her civil rights activism in the US. Um, she entered the Pantheon, in fact, just last year. Yeah, exactly. And and just like her, Bullard seems to have really loved France. He talks about it as, you know, as land of equality. Um, and he certainly had more opportunities here than he would have done in the US at the time. And Bullard actually knew Josephine Baker. He became part of the same kind of scene of black Americans in Paris at the time. He ran a couple of nightclubs in Montmartre and he also opened his own gym and he married a white French woman, which would have been illegal in the US at the time. Yeah. So here in France, did he did he ever go back to the United States? He did eventually. Um, so like Baker, he did some spying for the French resistance during the Second World War. Um, and then he joined the French army again and he was injured again. And then when the Nazis invaded France, he escaped. He went back to the US. Um, during the war, his nightclub in Paris was destroyed. And so he ended up living the rest of his life in New York. Um, he didn't actually have a lot of money. He worked a bunch of different jobs, some of them low paid. And then he died in kind of relative anonymity in 1961 of cancer at the age of 66. So without any recognition from the United States? No. So France gave him a load of medals after the war. Charles de Gaulle even made him a Knight of the Legion of Honour and called him a true French hero. Um, and he was invited to come back to light the, the flame on the tomb of the unknown soldier at the Arc de Triomphe here in Paris. Um, 
but he wasn't technically a veteran in the US. Um, it wasn't actually until 1994, so 33 years after he died, that Eugene Bullard was finally made an officer of the US Air Force. <laughs> So, Sarah, it's anti-bullying day in France today. It's all about drawing attention to harassment in schools. Figures show that around one in ten kids are bullied at some point in school, most of them in middle school, so that's 11 to 14-year-olds, roughly. Yeah, of course, bullying isn't new, but with social media and phones and devices, it can continue now, even when you're back home, in your own bedroom. Mm. There's really no escape. And this has driven several teenagers in France to take their own lives of late, and that's shocked the public tremendously and prompted the government to make the fight against bullying a national priority. The new young education minister, Gabriel Attal, admitted a few days ago in a TV interview that he'd been bullied himself at school. And he's talking increasingly tough. His ministry has launched a programme, it's called FAR, meaning Lighthouse, and the Prime Minister, Elizabeth Bourne, has called it 100% prevention, 100% detection, 100% solutions. That's a lot of percentages. <laughs> um, but what's in this programme? Yeah, very ambitious. Well, some of the measures include things like compulsory empathy classes in schools beginning next year. That's inspired by a programme in Denmark. Confiscating cell phones, excluding students that have been found bullying building up anti-bullying brigades within schools. That includes pupils who'll be trained to spot the signs early on, more training for teachers. Now, bullying has actually been a crime in France mm. since 2021. A child can get a fine, and if it's an adult, they can get prison time. But it seems that if it's gone to that point, the damage has already been done. And so the goal is to prevent bullying in the first place, and that's where a group of bikers are really coming into their own. Bikers like like motorcycles? Yeah, like Harley Davidson. Mm. You know, this group is called Ubaka, which stands for Urban Bulldogs Against Kids Abuse. Now, you may have heard of this group because the association was set up in North America 25 years ago, but specifically to campaign against child abuse. Whereas the French chapter, which was opened in 2015... Uh, with that, members are using their big muscles to, metaphorically at least, fight harassment specifically in schools. Teams of generally burly male bikers, uh, complete with tattoos, you know, heavy black leather jackets, rings. They'll roll up on their Harleys and go into classrooms to talk to kids, getting them to, especially to open up about their fears and experiences. The movement is particularly strong in Brittany in northwest France, where it all started back in 2015, thanks to a man called Bernard Mignot. He was around 70 at the time, enjoying retirement with his biker mates after a career that included being a bodyguard and working in security at the Interior Ministry. And then a friend returned from the US and told him about Ubaka. I had a biker friend whose son was being bullied at school. He asked us to intervene. So we went to the school, we met the boys who were doing the bullying and kind of warned them nicely. We're not police, we're not thugs, but we made them understand that they had to stop messing around. It made us realise we could do more to help. 
Et l'idée est partie de là-dessus. In the early days, before Ubaka obtained the right to go into schools, a pack of them would turn up at the school gates on their motorbikes to pick up kids who were having trouble, sending out a strong message to the bullies that they were not the boss. Un être humain réagira toujours par la peur. People always react to fear, and if you don't scare them, they won't stop. When we pick up the kids on our bikes, we create an impression of being threatening in the bullies' minds. We're not, but turning up on four or five bikes and taking an interest in a bullied kid, the bullies thought, ah, he's got older friends on motorbikes. They calmed down. We'd stare at them, make them understand that if they continued causing trouble, they'd have to reckon with us. It wasn't true, but we made them believe it. So who asks these guys to intervene in these situations? Sometimes it's teachers, sometimes parent representatives, or parents themselves. One mother contacted us for help. She didn't know where to go. She'd stopped working because her son had tried to take his life twice. In those cases, we go and see the child at home and talk to him. So now that the bikers are allowed to go into the schools, what are they actually doing? Well, their main focus is primary and middle schools, with a real emphasis on the 9 to 11-year-old age group. Bernard told me it's a particularly interesting age in terms of prevention because the kids are preparing to move over from primary school where they were the biggest ones to then being the youngest in a much bigger middle school. And lots of issues come into play at that time and your hormones are going crazy, etc. Now, kids tend not to want to open up to authority figures such as teachers or gendarmes who also give anti-bullying sessions in schools, but bikers, he says, are seen differently. It has a lot to do with the way we look. You know, in French we say, clothes don't make a man. But I don't think that's true. We're wearing bandanas, tattoos, rings, we have beards. We look virile in a way, and then I talk straight, maybe use swear words even. I think talking straight and the biker look really helps us do our job, to get them listening and to reinforce certain values. We tell them that in the biking culture you have to respect yourself and one another. Bernard and his fellow bikers recently went into a Catholic primary school in Brittany. The director, Fabienne Legal, says her pupils, aged 6 to 11, are too young to be affected by cyberbullying for the moment, and she hasn't seen any major bullying in her school, but she wanted to take preventive action. Prevention is better than the cure, you know. It all goes so fast and it's terrible to see the drama and suicides in middle schools. So I thought it was important to talk to the kids about all of that before they head to middle school. Last month, the bikers sat in the courtyard with a group of nine and ten-year-olds and among the many things they did was to use a mascot called René to encourage the kids to share personal information but in an anonymous way. The mascot, a big, cuddly monkey, worked really well. The kids could note down difficult moments at home or at school, and they put their messages in the mascot. The Ubaka team read them carefully afterwards and reported back to us if there was cause for concern. Several children wrote notes. They felt comfortable. The kids were particularly at ease with the bikers themselves, says Legal. 
ça marquait plus quoi le fait que ce soit des hommes qui soient tatoués They made a strong impression with their tattoos this rather unusual look Even the 10 and 11 year old boys who like to act tough were attentive I think they'll remember some of what these big strong men in leather jackets said And the fact that they were in a group and came on motorbikes As teachers we talk a lot about bullying amongst ourselves We read up, we go to training sessions. We're very vigilant, but it's all going so fast. You can't spot everything, so you also need input from outside. Now, Ubaka weren't yet operating when Madeleine Vanino, who's now 22, started getting bullied in primary school in Brittany. I've got ginger hair, so I got teased for that, and I was a bit overweight as a child. They called me carrot top, fatty, they said I stank. And then in middle school, some kids formed a group on social media to talk about me, criticize me, insult me. I ended up more or less on my own. I didn't want to go to school, my stomach was in knots, but I went. Things got worse, and when Madeleine was 15, she tried to take her own life by slitting her wrists. She eventually got help from a psychologist, managed to open up about what she'd been through, and got stronger. And then, when she was 17, as part of a school project where you could invite outside speakers, she suggested Ubaka come and talk to the class about the subject so close to her heart. She met the bikers beforehand to prepare. I stood up and I talked about what had happened to me. Some of my friends had no idea. I'm still in touch with Ubaka members. They can appear a bit abrupt at first, but they're not. They made us feel really at ease. Bernard is like an uncle to me now. If I have a problem, I know that I can contact him. It's easier to talk to someone who's not your parent. If Ubaka had been around before, perhaps I'd have spoken about all of this earlier. It would have done me a lot of good. So, will the Ubaka bikers become part of the official government's anti-bullying program? I mean, it's hard to imagine in France, mm. the education system is so tightly controlled. Yeah, apparently Brigitte Macron has said that she, you know, supports what they're doing oh. and sort of keep up the good work. The first but, lady, yeah. Yeah, okay. but it's all kind of a little bit unofficial. But mm. apparently she said that she thought they were doing a decent job. So we'll see. But expanding the, their work won't be easy because, for one thing, school hours are when most people are working. So most of the group's active members are pensioners. Bernard Mignot would love to have younger members on board, but it's very difficult to recruit. And in any case, he told me they don't really want the constraints of being part of the state apparatus. You know, they are what they are, they have their way of talking, their way of relating to people. There's still an element of rock and roll about them. So that's it for Spotlight on France. The show was mixed by Cécile Pompiani. If you like the podcast, please consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or giving us some five stars on Spotify or wherever you listen. It really does help people get to know us and helps us grow the podcast. Spotlight on France is a production of the English service of Radio France International. And if you want to write to us, we're at spotlight.france at rfi.fr. We're also on Instagram, Spotlight on France. And at rfienglish.com. We'll be back in two weeks on Thursday, November 23rd. Bye, Allison. Bye-bye, Sarah. <laughs>